From the studios of Boise State Public Radio News, I'm Gemma Cadet, and you're listening to Idaho Matters. March is Women's History Month, and today we're focusing on a lawsuit that made fundamental changes for women. Back in 1970, Idaho law said if that, that if you were trying to decide who should manage someone's estate and both parties were qualified, you had to pick a man over a woman. A mother named Sally Reed was told she could not be in charge of her son's estate because of that law, so she decided to challenge it, which changed the way our legal system looks at the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Dr. David Adler is a legal scholar and the president of the Alturas Institute. He'll be talking about the Reed case and women's rights here in Idaho Wednesday night at an event sponsored by the Idaho Women's Charitable Foundation in Garden City. We're lucky enough to have him joining us now to talk a little bit more about this. Dr. Adler, it's nice to have you back on the program. Thank you, Gemma. Great to be with you as always. Thanks for having me. So can you start by quickly describing the Reed versus Reed case in a nutshell? Well, you know, this was a case that Justice Ginsburg said transformed the law for American women. In in its essence, there was an old statute passed by the Idaho Territorial Legislature that indicated if there are equally qualified people to serve as an administrator of an estate, that the nod should go to a man. And that's because the Idaho Territorial Legislature back in the 1860s believe that a man has a better head for business than a woman. So that sexist orientation was the essence of this statute. And when uh, Sally Reed's son died, uh, she and her ex-husband, Cecil Reed, uh, who had a very acrimonious uh, marriage and divorce, both wanted to be uh, the executor of their young son's uh, estate. He left no Mm -hmm. will. And so the case went to the probate court. The probate judge said he had no choice but to follow the 1864 statute. And so he awarded uh, to the father, Cecil Reed, uh, the role as being the administrator of the estate, such as it was. There was, it had a value, Gemma, of less than $700, consisting of Mm -hmm. some books musical instrument. Uh, And so Sally Reed then decided to appeal the case. And this is where Reed versus Reed becomes an extraordinary case because it involves some ordinary Idahoans who who engage in extraordinary practices to change the law. Robert McLaughlin, an attorney based in uh, Mountain Home, had been Sally's initial attorney. Uh, He turned the case over to Alan Durr, here, a a Boise-based attorney, and Allen took the case, and they went to the 4th Judicial District in Boise uh, and went before a a wonderful judge named Charles Donaldson, chick to his friends, and in one of the very first rulings in the entire United States, and certainly the very first in the United States, Judge Donaldson struck down that 1864 law on grounds that it violated the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Mm. That, and that left uh, Cecil Reed with the appeal to the Idaho Supreme Court, which easily overturned Judge Donaldson's decision. And, mm-hmm. and that paved the way 
uh, for Sally Reed in consultation with her attorney, Alan Durr, to decide to appeal the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's when then-professor of law, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, teaching at Rutgers Law School, became involved in the case. So is it true, Dr. Adler, that Sally Reed was turned down by 16 different lawyers before she found Alan Durr, who, who would, would help her with the case? That's right. Uh, the reality here is that uh, a lot of people would not take that case because, look, that law was 100 years old. There were no helpful rulings from the U.S. Supreme Court that would have provided any confidence uh, for an attorney representing uh, Sally Reed uh, to take that case. Uh, and she had no money. And so as it happened, Alan Durr, uh, ended up handling the case on a pro bono basis. Uh, and it should be pointed out that uh, Robert McLaughlin played an important role in drafting the 14th Amendment argument uh, that he and um, Alan Durr uh, put forward in the judicial process. Alan mm. kept Robert McLaughlin's name on the brief, even though at that point now it was fully in the hands of Alan Durr. And so attorneys are businessmen and businesswomen. They want to earn a living and not all attorneys are willing to take cases on a pro bono basis. It was only the, the fact that Alan Durr, who had grown up in a, in a wonderful household where uh, both his mother and father taught him that racism and sexism were wrong. Uh, and here was his chance to apply not only his strong ideological beliefs, but his philosophy mm -hmm. uh, to the law. And you mentioned that the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was brought into this case. In fact, um, for folks who have seen the movie On the Basis of Sex, there are a couple of scenes in the movie where uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg comes to Boise. I mean, there's an Idaho Statesman headline in the movie. And as you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, Dr. Adler, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that this case was, quote, a turning point for gender equality. So um, why was she such a champion of Reed versus Reed? And why was she willing to come on board with this? So the fact is, is that uh, Professor Ginsburg had begun to teach some courses at the Rutgers Law School uh, involving women's rights and sexual discrimination. And uh, she was eager to apply her own theories and arguments to a case, if such a case emerged. And so she had contacted the American Civil Liberties Union to say, uh, if a case comes uh, before the court in which the ACLU will become involved, remember, I'd like to be involved, I'd like to write the brief. And in fact, Professor Ginsburg had been greatly influenced uh, by a relatively unknown uh, Howard University Law School graduate named Polly Murray, a black woman at this historically black school who in 1944 had written a paper on the discrimination against African-Americans. And she mm -hmm. believed that that also, those arguments against discrimination should apply equally to women. She presented that paper to her professor who then shared it with Thurgood Marshall, who 10 years later, in the landmark case of Brown versus the Board of Education, would utilize the arguments developed by this young law student, Pauli Murray, and gave her credit for it. 
That framework very much impressed Professor Ginsburg. And when she saw the appeal uh, by Sally Reed and Alan Durr to the Supreme Court challenging the, uh, the Idaho Supreme Court's decision, uh, she jumped at the chance and contacted Melvin Wolf, then the director of the ACLU, and said, here's the case, can I join? And mm. of course, that was nicely described in the movie that you mentioned on the basis of sex. But let me point out uh, for the listeners that there were two errors uh, in the film that simply reflect the Hollywood version. One was that, um, was that Ginsburg told Mel Wolf that she would like to do the oral argument. In fact, she never made that request. She always thought it should go to somebody else on the ACLU staff. Uh, and she, in fact, point two, error two, she did not meet uh, Alan Durr uh, in the New York office of the ACLU. They would not meet until the oral argument uh, took place in 1971. Mm. So it's okay. We can understand how Hollywood <laughs> embellishes a little bit. But yeah. Justice Ginsburg told me this when I interviewed her for this book that I'm writing on Read versus Read. So how important is this case for gender equality? You know, it's critical uh, because this was the first time in the history of the United States that the Supreme Court struck down a law on grounds that sexual discrimination violates the 14th Amendment. Now, the hope was that uh, the Allen Durr Ginsburg team could persuade the court uh, to render a ruling uh, holding that any discrimination based on sex violates the 14th Amendment in a way mm -hmm. that it would parallel the decision in Brown versus the Board of Education with respect to race. The Supreme Court uh, stopped short of that, uh, and that was a cause of disappointment. However, just because the court did not go the full nine yards in applying what we would call strict scrutiny to gender discrimination doesn't mean it was anything less than transformative because Reed versus Reed was cited in many cases afterward uh, in which the court would strike down statutes for violating uh, gender, for violating the 14th Amendment rights of women. So this was the key case that turned the law around for American women. Uh, as I say, it's not a complete victory, but as Justice Ginsburg told me in the interview, uh, the key is not to look at what the court did, but what it, not to look at what the court said, but what it did. And what was important was that the court had struck down this law for the first time. Mm. So what's interesting to me about all of this is not only that this happened in, in Idaho, and it did really change um, truly how, how women are viewed under the law. But with that said, Dr. Adler, um, parts of the Equality um, Act have, have still, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment have still not been completely ratified. Is that correct? That's correct. Of course, as you know, the state of Virginia just a couple of years ago did ratify the ERA. It became the 38th state, which under the mm -hmm. Constitution would, would satisfy the three-fourths requirement. Of course, the problem with this is that it took a long time and essentially exceeded the, the expiration period on mm -hmm on ratifying the amendment. There are those who would argue that it's been done, it should be counted, that's a debate in Congress. Uh, the bottom line is the ERA still needs to be 
ratified uh, because uh, the Constitution should state to our nation and indeed to the world that the United States does not tolerate discrimination uh, based on an accident of birth. It's, uh, it's as heinous as discriminating against people of color because they were born black or brown or yellow or red. Uh, and so uh, if the Supreme Court is not going to get to that point, and it's not, uh, we should state it very clearly. Uh, nonetheless, I would say, uh, we should have a firm declaration that gender discrimination is intolerable in the United States. So I want everyone to know we've been talking with Dr. David Adler. He's going to be sticking around um, to talk more about possible threats and challenges to our Constitution. But do remember that he will be talking about women's rights in Idaho this Wednesday night. It's at an event sponsored by the Idaho Women's Charitable Foundation in Garden City. We will, of course, put a link to our website about that event, boisestatepublicradio.org. As America gets closer to the 250th anniversary of the U.S. Constitution, which is just three years away, some people feel the document is being challenged in new and very serious ways. So is our Constitution under threat? Are there new challenges to fundamental rights and protections? These are just some of the questions Dr. David Adler will address in a series of constitutional conversations. Dr. Adler is the president of the Alturas Institute, which is hosting Thursday's open conversation at Boise State University. And he is staying with us to talk more about this. So, Dr. Adler, the theme of your talk is governmental accountability as a means of preserving our democracy. What exactly does that mean to you? Thank you. Well, James Madison in Federalist 51, uh, perhaps the most famous of the Federalist Papers, wrote in 1787 that, in fact, the great challenge that America faces in creating this newly minted republic is obliging the government to obey the Constitution. He considered that to be the great challenge. And, and the reality was is that government would, of course, uh, have a control over uh, the authority to govern the nation and included the authority to use force. Uh, and what lay at the bottom of this concern, Gemma, was the fact that Madison and the framers were realists. They understood that the possession of power uh, means that people are going to be tempted to abuse power. And they understood then uh, as a political axiom that uh, people uh, in positions of power have a huge appetite for more power. So how were we going to bind the government to the Constitution? To borrow from Thomas Jefferson's wonderful phrase, uh, it's necessary to bind the government to the Constitution through the use of chains. And so this mm. temptation to abuse power, to secure uh, goals and policies, would have to would represent a perpetual threat to the union. And I think that uh, we're we're probably it's probably fair to say that that remains the great challenge to our constitutional democracy, uh, because there remains the great need to check and balance uh, the executive and the legislature and to somehow hold the judiciary accountable as well. Um, Madison believed that ultimately we would rely on separation of powers and checks and balances to hold government accountable to the Constitution and the rule of law, but he placed also a primary emphasis on the American citizenry, believing uh, that if nobody else would have as great an interest in preserving the Constitution and Republican principles than we the people. 
And so it's still left to us to answer the bill, to answer that mm. trumpet call. So voting rights are being challenged in the U.S., and we're talking at both the federal and the state levels. Uh, states, for example, Dr. Adler, have utilized gerrymandering and repressive legislation to target voters, and, and particularly people of color. Um, so what can Congress do to protect against these actions and preserve the right to vote? Uh, that's a great question. The reality is that Congress has very broad authority ultimately to regulate the, the time, place, and manner of federal elections. Uh, the elections clause found in Article I, Section 4 of the Constitution says that states shall have the authority to regulate the time, place, and manner of elections, but that Congress can override these decisions. So the reason why the framers gave to Congress ultimately the responsibility to govern federal elections was because mm -hmm. they were well aware of the fact or the likelihood that some states may not adhere to federal regulations, might not carry out in a uniform way the kinds of um, qualifications and expectations associated with elections. And they didn't want the union to be held uh, hostage to uh, the misbehavior of a few states. So they gave ultimately the authority and the elections clause to Congress to regulate these federal elections. It's really important, it seems to me, to emphasize that because often, Gemma, we'll hear elected representatives in our state and across the country say, the federal government has no role in regulating these elections. It's a state matter. But those folks, unfortunately, haven't read the entirety of the elections clause. So uh, there's much that Congress can do to protect the fundamental right to vote. It can, among other things, still pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement mm -hmm. Act, promoted by the late uh, leader uh, who was uh, paramount in fighting for voting rights going back to 1965 when he was one of the key participants uh, crossing the bridge on Bloody Sunday, which by mm -hmm. the way, our nation just marked the 58th anniversary of that uh, yesterday. Uh, and that would ensure that Congress could uh, require states to adhere to these, uh, to these qualifications and requirements uh, in the elections clause. There has to be, above all else, a sentiment of fair play, a recognition by uh, office holders that the right to vote is indeed a right. It's a fundamental right. It's not a privilege. Uh, to be uh, manipulated uh, for partisan or political reasons. Uh, and the fact is, is, is that in a democracy, we try to promote social conditions that will uh, broaden the opportunities for our citizens to participate, not restrict fundamental rights uh, for purely electoral or partisan or party mm -hmm. reasons. So I only have a couple of minutes left with you, Dr. Adler, and I, and I want to get to one more question, and this is concerning what's going on here in Idaho. The Idaho legislature is considering a bill right now to amend the Idaho Constitution, which would make it a lot more challenging for Idahoans to get a citizen initiative on the ballot. Now, as you know, Dr. Adler, currently you need, you need voters in, um, I believe, 18 of the 35 voting districts in our state to place a petition on the ballot. That's difficult already. Um, just talk to folks who have done this. This bill, however, would require signatures from voters in all 35 districts. 
So my question for you as we wrap up our conversation, does this bill curb voting rights of Idahoans? The reality is that it does. And so the great irony here is that the legislature is asking Idaho voters to surrender their own voting rights. And so one has to wonder why would any Idaho voter for whatever political reason, uh, no matter their membership in any party, want to essentially surrender their fundamental right to vote. That's what this is about. And so depriving Idahoans of the opportunity to resort to the initiative process, which the founding fathers referred to as, quote, conventions out of doors uh, to safeguard their rights and their interests when the legislature ignored them, would be uh, foolhardy for Idahoans, I believe, uh, to, to pass this measure. Uh, the reality is, is that Idahoans may remember the 1986, 1986 right to work bill that sounded slick, that it was protecting the right of Idahoans to work. The reality, Gemma, is that what that bill did is it essentially destroyed labor unions in the state. It didn't enhance wages, it hurt wages, hurt the long-term interest of Idahoans. And yet Idahoans on that occasion surrendered uh, key rights and protections. This mm. is even uh, a, more, a more audacious ask by the legislature and asking Idahoans to curb their own rights, uh, to curb your own voting rights, to curb your own opportunity to check the legislature is an exercise in surrendering uh, your democracy. So this is an initiative, uh, in my view, that can represent a grave harm to the future of democracy and the rights of Idahoans. Well, Dr. Adler, as always, we really appreciate you coming on the program. We've been speaking with the president of the Alturas Institute, Dr. David Adler, uh, which will be hosting his talk, Maintaining the Guardrails of Democracy in an Era of Constitutional Chaos. This will be Thursday night at Boise State University. Again, we will put more information on our website, boisestatepublicradio.org. Thanks so much for coming back in, Dr. Adler, and talking with us. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Idaho Matters. Boise State Public Radio and Idaho Matters are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gemma Gaudet. We'll see you tomorrow. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies.